All right, I'm sure we're waiting on a couple more people. We are at 45, so I thought I'd at least introduce myself for anybody who uh, may not know me. I'm Jonathan Grotefant, and I've been a member of Faith for a little over six years now. Uh, you probably have seen my kids running around. Uh, they were in the early service. Uh, my wife, Alyssa, we met the first day of college at Concordia Seward, Nebraska. Actually, it was before classes even started, so that was back in 2006. And she roomed next to a friend of mine from high school and came over to say hi. Again, freshman weekend before classes even started, and I said, oh, she's cute. <laughs> and then the rest is history. We've been married for almost 15 years now, and again, yeah, four kids, we homeschool. Like you do, you know, even though I studied pre-seminary, so I took four years of Greek and Hebrew, plans change. So we backpacked Europe, came home, and I joined the Navy. So I did six years in the Navy, and then I've been here for about six years. So I've been uh, an operator, a system operator at ERCOT, officially longer than I've been in the Navy. So, um, so yeah, you may ask, like, okay, why listen to this guy? You know, I'm just a lay person, but, you know, that phrase, like, lay person, if you've been in any of my classes, you know that uh, I very much subscribe to the priesthood of all believers. So we as Christians, we are all priests, and that means the priestly role is we represent God to the world, you know, to the people, and then we res represent the people to God. So you see this, I mean, there's even language with Adam and Eve that they were made in the image of God and they were supposed to rule over creation. It's very intentional language. So they were supposed to essentially rule over and take care of creation the way that God would, being his imager, right? Being made in his image. So fast forward to Exodus, after God saves the people out of slavery, he makes a covenant with them at the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. And he says, I'm going to make you a nation of priests. And through you, the whole world is going to be blessed. So the idea was you're living according to the way I designed you to live and represent me. And the whole world is going to be blessed through you. And they're going to see that, man, their God is the one who saves. And I want in. Of course, the Hebrews, uh, the Israelites, it didn't take long uh, into the promised land. And even that generation that made that covenant, they all died in the wilderness for uh, falling away. So this class is called, Lord, this is a hard saying. And it comes from John chapter 6. Jesus is really starting to get popular. So he's got a bunch of disciples at this point. And this is the time where his teaching just starts to get a little too much for some people. So from John chapter 6, starting at verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Because again, right before this is where Jesus says, You know, my, my flesh is uh, true food and my blood is true drink, and you have to partake of it. So here he says, uh, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, 
and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, has also he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard this, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in, him, in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? So that's going to be a question that I think a lot of uh, you know, modern Christians could ask. Is, uh, do we take offense at a lot of the word of God? And, you know, with, with pondering that, that not only sets the course, you know, for this stage, but um, let's open up in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for uh, providing for us day by day, uh, for giving us a faithful church and uh, good community here at Faith Lutheran Church. We want to pray for your whole Christian church on earth, that your word may, may not be bound but have free course. Empower your saints to faithfully preach your gospel in word and in deed, uh, so that all may come to know you and know that your words are not constricting, but actually give life and freedom. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so that's our question, right? Are you offended by this? Now I will say sometimes, you know, text can be basically completely misunderstood. So you have some that it's easy to say in the theological, you know, theology circles, just like, oh, context, as if just saying the word context just makes everything okay. You know, it's like, don't ask me to explain it, but context, right? That's not actually what he meant. And, you know, sometimes there is a historical context that you have to be made aware of, and then it'll click and you'll go, okay, I understand. In the ancient Israelites society, this now makes sense. But sometimes, you know, yeah, there's, Sometimes there's more going on, but sometimes it's just a really hard saying. And sometimes God is just challenging his people and saying, actually, yes, I do expect that of you, you know. And sometimes Jesus does this thing where he says something shocking, and it's not that he doesn't mean it, but you have to lean into it to figure out what he really is saying, you know. So the Old Testament does that too. One of the things that I'm going to invite us to do is think about certain texts. There's kind of three dimensions or aspects that you can take when thinking about a difficult text. The first, so and they are, the historical, literary, and theological. So the historical is kind of what we were talking about. Just uh, what is the context of the history going on? And maybe that'll explain a little bit more. There's the literary, and as Lutherans, sometimes we don't talk about this, maybe like the function of that story inside the bigger story. So, for example, one of my favorite stories of Exodus, you know, people read it and they'll say, I've never heard this before, right? I've been reading the Bible all my life, and it's after Moses and the burning bush. So Moses, you know, he flees to... Um, uh, to Mount Sinai, right, to the base of Mount Horeb, and that's where he meets God in the burning bush, and he gets this, um, he gets the charge to go back to Egypt, and God gives him signs, 
But then, so he's fired up and he's ready to go rescue God's people, even though he gave God five excuses. But on the way back, it's like out of nowhere, it says, so on the way, God, that you know, so the Lord in all caps, Yahweh, sought to kill him. So Zipporah, his wife, takes a sharp flint knife and circumcises him and throws it at his feet and says, you're a bridegroom of blood. And then God doesn't kill him. And that's the end of the story. And they move on and you go, what in the world was that all about? And it's intentionally weird, but it also bookmarks things. So you can take that with some other stories and really meditate on it. And one of the things the Bible does really well is does a whole lot in fewer words. Um, so we may very well talk about that story later, but uh, we did in the Exodus class uh, last year. But anyway, that's a literary function where it just seems like, what in the world is going on? Well, there's, there's structure going on. It's really sophisticated. Then there's the theological function where even though it may be a historical story, God intended it very much to have theological implications for us today. So uh, Paul talks about this. Jesus talks about this. I think it's, uh, let's see if I wrote it down. Um, I forget where it is, but, you know, it's that these things happened as examples to us now. So the stories, they were real. They actually happened, and God cared for his people. But they also happened for theological purposes for us today. So those are like the three legs of the stool of talk and theology, the historical, literary, and theological. Now, before I start talking about today's topic, which is imprecatory psalms, which will be Psalm 139 and 137, and you can start paging towards 139 if you want to. Peter's response to Jesus's question there, when Jesus says, do you take offense at this? Peter has uh, just a beautiful confession of faith that we sing if we do the sung liturgy before the reading of the gospel. Uh, so Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So Peter doesn't run from Jesus after this hard saying. He leans into him, you know, and Again, this is the beautiful liturgy I wish we sang. It only takes like 10 seconds. We should sing it every Sunday. Alleluia, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You guys know that. So our first topic, Psalm, uh, which will be Psalm 139, imprecatory psalms. So you may have heard that term, imprecatory. Uh, it's a big theology, fancy word that makes you look smart. But it's simply an imprecation most literally means curse. And curse has a bad connotation in English, in modern English. We think like witches and dark magic and spells and stuff, mm -hmm. and you're going to do some magic to make something bad happen to somebody. But curse in its most basic denotation is simply, um, in this sense, it's going to be asking God to bring his divine and righteous justice or judgment down upon the wicked. It's asking God uh, to basically make the bad things stop, you know, make the bad people stop. When done properly, as we'll see David do, 
it's not just like, it's not just looking for vengeance, you know, but the psalmists, when they pray these, they understand that vengeance does belong to God. And it is very much a part of his nature in bringing justice and judgment. And we're going to talk about how God's judgments, they're a part of his goodness. You know, we would not want a God who is not just. We would not want a God that just forgives everybody, even though they don't repent. Because imagine bad, wicked people doing wicked things, and then God just saying, oh, you're forgiven. And then they continue to do wicked things. We don't want a God who is unjust. So we're going to keep that in mind. One example of maybe an imprecatory hymn that we have, we may know the hymn, Lord, keep us steadfast in your word. It's a Martin Luther hymn. Lord, keep us steadfast in your word. Curb those who by deceit or sword would wrest your kingdom from your son and bring to naught all he has done. Well, the second line there and this isn't actually confirmed, but we do have a lot of examples of this in German. Is, so, Lord, keep us steadfast in your word. Restrain the murderous Pope and Turk. <laughs> so, but, so we can't officially, there's no documentation that Luther actually wrote that, but it was attributed to him and it was out there. So you're like, okay, that's kind of specific, right? Restrain the murderous Pope and Turk. Well, at the time for these German Lutherans, the Ottoman Empire from Turkey, right? Like the equivalent of, uh, well, yeah, the, we know what the Ottoman Empire was, like an Islamic state was a very real military threat to the people in Europe. So there were all these wars going in, in southern or southeastern Europe all the time. So it was a very real threat that the Turks through the Ottoman Empire could come in and get them. And then also a very real threat to these new uh, Protestants. There were martyred Protestants all throughout Europe during that time. So the political side of the Catholic Church absolutely did martyr some Protestant leaders. So, again, it's not Luther just saying, hey, slaughter all the Turks and then the Papists. No, but he's saying curb their um, aggression against your faithful people here. So again, it's, it's asking God to stop or bring vengeance, his righteous justice, upon those who bring violence, oppress the vulnerable, practice all sorts of wickedness, and especially we're going to see blaspheming God's name and doing wicked things in attempt to blaspheme his name. So finally, kind of touched on this, but to pray these properly, uh, you have to understand God's character. So you see this, uh, definitely Moses on the mountain, and we'll talk about that, but go all the way back to the very beginning. God's creation was good. God declared all things good. So if the devil and you know, wicked, sinful people make thing, things bad, God has to restore things to the way they were supposed to be. And, um, you know, Adam and Eve, again, the charge was to rule the world the way that God, that God would, right? We're to be his representatives. That's what it means to be made in the image of God, his imager, his representative on earth. So 
again, if the devil makes it bad, <laughs> God has to restore things to the way they were supposed to be. So it's God is bound by his very nature and his purposes to restore things. He says this most clearly what defining his nature in Exodus on the mountain, you have Moses make the covenant. So the people marry God, right? In, in the first covenant. And they say, yes, we're going to do it. We're going to be your kingdom of priests. And Moses goes back up on the mountain and he's up there for 40 days. And it's like on their wedding night, they cheat on God with the golden calf. You know, that's basically what's going on. And while he's up there, God says, he says to Moses, I love this, that like, your people that you brought up out of Egypt just made a golden calf and they're worshiping it. And uh, Moses, so he's, he says, I'm going to destroy these people and start over with you, Moses. And Moses basically says, he says two things. One, what would the nations, what would the Gentiles think if you did that, God? It'd make you look bad, right? So he challenges God. Imagine God in all his fire and glory, and you have the nerve to stand up and challenge him on this thing. So he says, um, think what, you know, the Egyptians would think that, oh, this powerful God saved them out of slavery through the Red Sea just to bring them out here and kill them in the wilderness. It would make you look bad and you care about your name, right? So God says, okay. And ba Moses basically says, how about you just forgive them instead? And that's more or less what he does. So then Moses, as his representative, goes down and he doesn't clear the guilty. The instigators do get executed, but everybody, you know, everybody else, they get forgiven. So he's merciful and gracious, but he also will by no means clear the guilty. So when Moses goes back up, this is where you know, Bible story as a kid, you always think this is super cool because Moses gets to see the back of God. So Moses, you know, says, show me your glory. And God says, you can't see my face, but you can see my back in my full unfettered glory. So he hides him in the cleft of the rock and he passes through and he says this, the Lord, the Lord in all caps. So Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So he's merciful and gracious, slow to anger. He's abounding in, here's your good Hebrew word for the day, chesed. Chesed is, uh, it's translated several different ways. Uh, in the ESV, you often see it steadfast love, but, and that's what it is. It's steadfast love, but it's a covenant love. You know, it's a, a love that is bound to the promises he's made to us. And he's faithful and true. But, and you know how Pastor Poland always like reads the law and then it's like, but gospel. This is the other way. You get the gospel first and it's but who will by no means clear the guilty. And the funny thing is, before this, you know, Moses says, show me your glory. I want to see your full. God says, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. So it's not just the merciful and gracious and faithfulness that's good. It's the fact that he won't clear the guilty. That's also good. So then the question, you know, fast forward to us. Okay, we're also guilty of our sin. So the question for all of mankind now is clearly, 
is his divine righteous justice and judgment, since he can't clear the guilty, is that judgment going to come down on Christ on the cross and that blood cover you? Or are you going to be stuck in your unrighteousness on the last day? But again, the by no means clear the guilty. That's a good thing, as we talked about before. We don't want a God who just forgives the wicked and allows them to keep being wicked and oppressing the vulnerable and slaughtering the innocent and all this. So it's all part of his goodness. And the Lord binds himself to be consistent with this. So when your atheist friend says, if God loves everybody so much, why doesn't he just forgive everybody? Well, for that very reason, you know, because you, it's not good to let the wicked off to continue to do wicked things. And there has to be repentance. And there has to be repentance, right? God cannot be mocked. We know that. Yeah. Yep. And you may look however you want to your neighbor, but inside your heart, he knows it. And if you're unrepentant, then you're done. Yeah. And this is something, you know, like, man, talk about a, a soft gospel that isn't the full gospel. Like, yeah, we are saved by grace through faith, not of anything we do so that no one can boast, right? We are by sinful, by nature, sinful and unclean. Nothing is attributed to us by our good works toward salvation. The world does not believe that. But, yeah, yeah, that's true. But, you know, now that God's given us a new heart, it's not that we make up to God for our sins. It's not that we, like, become more saved or anything like that. And it's not that we have to be scared that we're not saved. Of course not. But, like, God does expect us to live regenerate lives. And this is in our confessions. You know, we have a full section in our confessions about uh, the regenerate man, you know, and living regenerate, repentance, repentant lives. So that's why Moses can pray with boldness and David can pray with boldness is because they understand the character of God and they understand those things. And that line, the merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, it's re-quoted in the Bible more than anything else. So you'll just be reading through the prophets or, you know, it, it, it's like 20 some odd times it gets quoted even later in the Old Testament. So we should also seek, right? To, that's why you need to live in the word for that biblical wisdom so that you know how to discern between these things. Because um, I'm not recommending that you go home and start praying against people you don't like. But as we will see, and, you know, I've listened, uh, there's a LCMS pastor, I, he's pretty popular online, and he's not afraid to say it. He's like, I have some wicked rulers in my life, and I pray against them. That doesn't mean that I pray that bad things happen to them, but I absolutely pray that God remove them from power. Now, we, uh, you know, at Faith, we do this so well. No matter who's in the White House, we pray for the president every single Sunday, and that's perfect, you know, we ought to, that's how we should do it. But when wicked things are going on, you know, of course you pray for their repentance. We're not saying you don't, but like, yeah, at some point you can say, God, this is mocking you and blaspheming your name. Take action, please, Lord. It's the martyrs in Revelation, but beneath the throne, you know, how long, O Lord, until you avenge us? You know, they're not praying that uh, people go to hell. They're just praying that, you know, the wicked stop. Hey, John. Mm -hmm. I found really helpful in Psalm 510, 
the note that explains 510 uh, in the Lutheran Study Bible. That is perfect. That talks about implications. No, they're not curses, really. We're just asking God to stop, to take action. It's like going to court. Say, God, hey, I'm a plaintiff or I'm yep. a defendant. Please stop this. And it's not our call to say, yeah, I want you to have a rock fall on him and split him into a hundred pieces. <laughs> yeah. Hey, that's not my call. You decide how you want to handle yeah. it. Yeah. Please stop it. And that's Very the, helpful. it would be a detriment to the Christian to pray in, in an imprecatory way improperly, you know. But that's why, like, the character of God is so important to understand. Let's read Psalm 139. <clears throat> so, a psalm of David to the choir master. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain it. So, so far we're tracking with the Psalm. We like this. God's omniscient. Okay, that sounds good. Uh, he knows all of our actions and all of our thoughts before we even make them. And if you know God, that's comforting. If you don't know God, that should scare you. <laughs> so, yeah, and like, and that's a good point. We will definitely talk about this, what the fear of the Lord is. It's not only have a lot of respect for God. It's also like, it's not be afraid of God, but it is like recognizing that we'll stand before his throne and your eternal soul is in his hands. If that doesn't like have a little bit of real fear attached to it, then you should think about how holy our God is. So uh, that doesn't, and 100%, that doesn't mean we're afraid of him because we know he is faithful and true. So we can trust fully in his promises that we are redeemed. But, yeah. Sometimes when I left the house, my mother would say, remember, God watches you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, right? All right. Verse 7. Where shall I f go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Uh, Sheol, we may talk about that at some point. In uh, Hebrew, Sheol, I mean, it's kind of just the place of the dead, but the, the idea is that everybody get, goes to Sheol, the wicked and the righteous. But for the righteous, it's a place of comfort. It's a place of... Uh, you know, you're with God. And we'll probably at some point, you know, in the last couple of weeks, actually talk about Sheol because it's really interesting. But um, yeah, it's even, you know, Moses and Abraham were there. So it's a place of comfort. 
but not for the wicked. So he's saying, even in the grave, even if I die, I know you're going to be with me. Uh, If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The light is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. <clears throat> so maybe weird language for us, but the, uh, the earth kind of has this womb-like property, right? So man was made, God made Adam from the dust of the earth. <clears throat> so even dust in the beginning, right, is like kind of the womb of the first man. But also it's the, the fertile ground that brings forth vegetation. So just, <clears throat> excuse me, just uh, poetic language for, for the womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So all our days are numbered. (laughs) And this should be both comforting and, as we talked about, one of proper fear. So I won't get into that that whole thing again. But as Jesus says, you know, do not fear him who can destroy the body, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Ask any kid what... They, they think that means, and they'll say, oh, he's talking about the devil. He's not talking about the devil. He's talking about his father. He's talking about God. So uh, the, Ella, the Lutheran Study Bible, <clears throat> excuse me again, the Lutheran Study Bible absolutely takes a long section here and um, talks about how all life is made in the image of God. Um, in the LCMS, I mean, we're talking about before birth. We're unapologetically pro-life. And we won't, you know, maybe later we'll be able to really talk about that. But like um, 100%, right? It doesn't just go for unborn children. It goes for all children and all people. Uh, So I'm not going to get political on day one, I promise. I don't want to get in too much trouble. But one thing that like I just couldn't get through this without thinking about are many, many idols that we create for ourselves. And I am 100% guilty of this too, thinking about politics and uh, making it be an idol, right? Uh, Both ways, right? If your trust is going into princes of the earth and not God, then if you're looking at politics to, you know, what, you know what I'm saying? Does partisanship cause me to question my Christian ethics? That should be the question. So, uh, where were we? 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. And here's where he shifts gears. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. All right, so the psalmist definitely shifts gears 
into one's something of extreme frustration. And you know, sometimes uh, anger is a completely legitimate emotion. In fact, I'd be concerned if you don't get angry sometimes, because God certainly does. Um, you know, to love righteousness is to hate unrighteousness. So like when God created and everything was good, you know, he legitimately could get angry when it was made ungood. As Lutherans, we distinguish between law and gospel pretty well. And we understand that we're solely saved by grace through faith. But we also confess that we ought to live a regenerate, sanctified life. That doesn't mean we're like more saved by living a regenerate life and doing good works. It simply means that, you know, it's an effect of being saved, you know, by the cross solely. So I say that because part of ordering our lives to be more in tune with scripture is to be walking more in righteousness, which also means despising unrighteousness. So the question here, the question becomes, what do you do with your very legitimate emotions of frustration and anger? And the psalmist we're about to see, David, he gives it to God. Now that's, <laughs> that's a phrase that I think, you know, in like, especially evangelical Christianity, you can just use the phrase, give it to God, right? Well, yeah, it get, it's like the let go and let God. I actually think that's really bad advice. You know, use your biblical wisdom to uh, struggle through those difficult situations that you have. Now, there is something about giving your trust over to God, and that's probably what they mean. But the psalmist here, instead of taking things upon himself, he trusts that God is going to take care of it. So his next line after, I hate them with complete hatred, I count them my enemies, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So one more time, I love this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Uh, test me and know my anxious thoughts. So the word here for thoughts, um, it, it is the lexicon I have uh, said disquieting thoughts. So they're thoughts that are bothering you that you are wrestling with. So I can see anxious thoughts. I, another translation does it that way. He recognizes that nothing is hidden from God, right? And he leans into this trust that wherever David was at in his story, I mean, his entire life, he had people after him trying to kill him and people that were through their lives blaspheming God. But, you know, as David multiple times had the chance to kill Saul, but he relents because, right, he says, how can I kill the Lord's anointed? You know, he's anointed me king, but Saul is still the anointed king as well. So it's this weird situation, but he fully trusts God to take care of it in his time. And he does. I guess now's a good time. Any, any thoughts on that so far? I have a few more things to say about this psalm in general, but... 
I'm glad you're talking about the subject matter the way you are because I always feel like when I'm praying and I'm trying to repent for my sins, a big, big one is the anger I get from the media, from the things I see politically. And I don't, I don't want to go down that line, but I, my anger is, I, I literally will curse people on the TV. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So and, I, and then I pray forever because I think as soon as I did it, I always pray for knowledge. And I go, okay, you gave me the knowledge too because you didn't like what I just said. <laughs> you know? But what you, where you're going with that helps us, I think, in the room feel like we're not in a pillar by ourselves with that anger. That, that environment we're living in today is, brings anger that is just nothing to do with yeah. going out and robbing a store. You know, the other yeah. I hear you. So, um, yeah. So to reiterate, right. Cause we're recording as well. So, um, I totally agree. And in fact, that's what I was going to say is I personally, especially getting out of the Navy, going through where my frustration and anger with what I saw in the world. And you know what it was, I would even say maybe like a righteous anger. However, you know, it's like the question becomes, do you let your anger rule over you? So, of course, I then thought about uh, Cain and Abel. And the Lord said to Cain after Cain uh, started getting angry with his brother because God was accepting Abel's sacrifice and not his. God says to him, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And I actually, I don't like that translation, the its desire is contrary to you. It's, its desire is for you. It's like a beast ready to pounce on you and devour you. And Peter picks up this language in uh, your enemy, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone whom devoured whom to devour that's i guarantee he had this on the mind that you know the sin like a beast is ready to get you so you have to rule over it the way you were intended to is isn't isn't david though he's also saying tell me i'm not crazy i mean these people are really bad you know test my thoughts and let me know that i'm not crazy you know that i but i'm going to give it over to you because you're sovereign yeah. I just want to know that I like I'm on the right path here. Like this is bad. Yeah. Okay, I'll put an opinion. <coughs> Two Jews, three opinions. <laughs> so just so you know that. The word I translate offended, if I offend you, that means I've challenged you. So you start rethinking like what is my faith based on? And can it be challenged? Can I, I don't want to say defend, but basically maybe I need to step back and say, why am I offended? What is it that's offending me? Because there's all these different interpretations. And generally by having our faith, I don't say challenge, but basically it strengthens it when we can actually talk about this and not say, you got to do it my way or you're wrong. You know, basically what is so when somebody says, you offend me, I look at them like, why? Because? That's, you know, we're not prepared to answer.
Before we move on to our next psalm, you know, one last time I'll ask, what's David do with it? With his righteous frustration for those who despise the word of God and blaspheme him, he gives it to God. And I'm sure he remembered that, right? The Lord declares, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. And sometimes we will not see the uh, God's justice brought, you know, upon a situation. And sometimes it may seem like, as Job always, you know, questions, why do the wicked prosper? You know, why are the wicked prospering here? And there's even some wicked kings in the Old Testament that live long, happy lives, worshiping other gods and uh, doing horrible, horrible things. Uh, But sometimes God's divine justice is yielded until the last day. So we will eventually see it. It just might be on the last day. Uh, but that's also a character of God. He doesn't forget. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he doesn't forget. So, as you said, find comfort in God's sovereignty. Don't let it consume you. And especially with your, especially with your brother, don't let the sun go down when you're still angry. Uh, that's not always possible with viewing the world, right? But we can also think about like. <clears throat> Well, we're, we'll, we'll talk about Daniel with the next psalm, because uh, the next psalm takes place in, um, in Babylon. So flip back just a couple of pages, and we'll get to Psalm 137. Yeah, and we got time for it. All right, Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept, when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth, if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. So, so far, the psalmist, he's in Babylon, and he is one who witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem. So this is way after David, because you have King David, you have King Solomon, and then at Solomon's death, the kingdom divides. Hundreds of years go by. Uh, The northern kingdom of Israel falls first to the Assyrians, and then like 150 years later, the kingdom of Judah falls and Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And uh, Jerusalem is nearly completely destroyed and the temple is destroyed. And this is one of the few faithful guys. So Judah was very wicked at the time. And there was like even child sacrifice going on. Really wicked stuff. But there's a few faithful people And I'd imagine that day to day, they were probably, right, angry at the state of the world. And the prophets preaching at the time are warning them, you guys need to turn back to to God and repent because he's going to send a kingdom to come and destroy you. And they said, no, look at our walls. We're good. Trusting in their own ways, in their own strength. And that, of course, didn't happen. 
So then this guy, like Daniel and Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego, they get carted off into exile, and they have to go serve the king. And now this guy is sitting here like, good grief, you know. He probably also lost everything. Now we should note, in Ezekiel, before the destruction of Jerusalem, God sends an angel, and he marks the faithful to be spared. So he marks them with a, the Hebrew letter Tau, which would have looked like a cross, actually, with the way it was written at the time. So he marks them with a cross on their forehead and uh, saves the faithful. But that doesn't make it hurt any less, right? Seeing the destruction of God's temple <clears throat> and a bunch of pagans coming in and desecrating the temple before they destroy it. So the psalmist, he, as we're about to see, uh, he absolutely does feel this intense emotion and is honest about his feelings of violent revenge uh, on God's enemies, which are his enemies. It's also, just like in Isaiah, it's prophetic about the destruction of Babylon and Edom. Because what Edom did, longtime rivals and enemies of, of the Israelites, <clears throat> uh, when Jerusalem was destroyed, the Edomites rub salt in the wound. So big bad Babylon comes in, destroys Jerusalem, and then the Edomites come in and mop up a lot of the stragglers and also slaughter a bunch of the Israelites. So he's saying not just Babylon, but also Edom, these pagan people who have been cursing your name, they just got victory over us, which includes me. How is this fair? So, sorry? Descendants of Ishmael. Yeah, yeah, the Edomites, and that's, that's a long rabbit hole. As he pointed out, uh, the Edomites were, they were, they were brothers, right? Because you have Jacob and Esau, and the Edomites become the descendants of Esau. So in a way, like, you know, a lot of these local nations, they're all a big family. <laughs> they're just not acting like it. Okay, so where were we? Uh, verse 8. Oh, yeah, so here we go. Lay it bare down to the foundations. That's what the Edomites were saying. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed be he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. In even Isaiah, which came decently before the destruction of Jerusalem, he even uh, prophesies the people that will be doing this. So the Medes will be the ones to come in and conquer Babylon. And so the Medes, another right pagan nation, this very thing will happen. So in another way, it's actually prophetic. Um, but in his day-to-day -day life, the psalmist, he definitely did not see the destruction of Babylon. He probably died in exile, living a faithful life, but wrestling with these emotions his, his, the rest of his days. Instead, he experienced all manner of persecution and suffering. And, I, you know, even today, yeah, all in our own ways. Isn't that how it feels? Feeling like, right, the injustice in the world is winning, the wicked are prospering. And, again, we may pray against the wickedness, but we may not actually see any of it fall 
And that may not be for us until the last day. Which, by the... Here's another topic to punt for a while. Uh, where the Bible says we will be active in the judgment. So I think, I, you know, I've always said, if I had to guess, this would be liturgical. But Paul says to the Corinthians, and it's in the Old Testament too, which is why Paul says it, that, right, you guys are going to be judging the nations. You're like, What? Gee, okay, yeah, Jesus is the one who's going to be judging the nations. But um, he says, you know, you guys aren't in Corinthians, I think. You guys aren't judging among yourselves properly. You're not handling your own disagreements. How are you expected to judge the nations? And then he's got this line, which I absolutely love. I can see him, like, leaning in and saying, don't you know that you will judge angels? And a normal Christian is just reading through their New Testament, and they're like, what the heck is that about? Well, it's this Old Testament theme, you know, and this guy can probably relate to it. They also recognized in the Old Testament that they were saved by grace. You know, God didn't come to the Israelites in Egypt when they were slaves and say, hey, if you obey all these rules, then I will save you. God saves them, makes them free, and then he gives them the rules about how life works best. You know, and this is the way that you honor me and bless everybody around you. These aren't rules to constrict your fun. You know, these aren't rules to like cramp your style. These are rules that are actually freedom, you know, because in this world, I mean, there's a reason Paul says slavery to sin, right? Like in this world, it's our sinful desires and it's the focus on the things of the world, whether it's money or career advancement or whatever. It's not that those things are bad, like we have to use money. Even Jesus had a treasure. But it's when those things get in front of the things of heaven that, you know, freedom is in the latter. It's not in it's not in the things of the world. So we could relate to the psalmist here. Um if you know anybody or have a loved one that was lost to war or violent crime, if you or anyone you ever know, uh, I mean, it's just all too common. It seems like know somebody who is maybe sexually abused or basically if you've experienced really bad things happen to you or someone you love that was unjust, you can legitimately experience these emotions, you know, Anger, and I will say this with the caveat of everything we've talked about so far, anger and even hate can be legitimate emotions and not sinful in and of themselves. And think about the psalmist. Do I not hate those that hate you, O Lord, that blaspheme your, blaspheme your name, that murder the innocent for gain, you know, that start wars for profit? Like... <laughs> My goodness. But then just like that, it's what do we do with it? You have to trust God. You know, that even if God's answer is have patience, and that means, right, on the last day, when you will, again, this is just my guess, what's it mean to be active in judgment? I see it being liturgical. So like sheep and the goats, where God you know, asks the saints, did this one obey my statutes, right? Did this one confess my name? Did this one repent? And then we say, no, Lord, 
He did not. You know, that's probably the extent of how active we'll be. That's just my guess. I don't know. But, um, yeah, it requires patience and understanding the character of God. The psalmist was a contemporary of Daniel. So Daniel becomes a really, really, really helpful figure in dealing with this. Because sometimes, you know, if you've read the book of Daniel, you're not thinking about everything he went through necessarily. In fact, it seems pretty nice for him in Babylon. You know, it seems like, well, he was one of the chosen ones who uh, got a full buffet every day and got uh, promoted to a position of authority. He was actually probably wealthy, which is actually probably true. But at the same time, he had to experience the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple of the God he loves. And he probably experienced a lot of these same things. He even had to work for and probably pay taxes to a government that did it to him, you know? And how, what does he do? You know, he trusts God and he uses biblical wisdom to discern between these things. And that's why being in the word all the time is so important. And I'm not going to claim to do this all perfectly, but... Um, he, he definitely sets limits. Um, he won't pray to the idol. He won't pray to King Nebuchadnezzar. He even challenges him. But he does do the tasks that are set before him. Through Jeremiah, God had a lot to say to his people, almost like preparing them for exile. It's when you're there, uh, plant gardens. So... Jerusalem's going to get destroyed and you're going to get carted off into exile, but go ahead, get married, raise your family and plant gardens as you live among a pagan culture that is going to blaspheme, blaspheme my name. And through you, right, you're still my priest and through you, the whole world will be blessed. If I had to guess the way I read the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar has to repent a couple of times. The first time that he confesses God's name as the only true living God who saves, he ends up falling back into his pride. And that's when God really humbles him. And this is a whole different story. But he loses his mind and he lives naked in the wilderness for several years. <laughs> and then it comes back to him and he comes back and his kingdom is destroyed. And then he says, okay, now I finally know that God is God and I am not. So if I had to guess, I think Nebuchadnezzar probably died with faith, but that's debatable. But how crazy would that be if the king who destroyed God's temple and blasphemed his, blasphemed his name and sent armies in to kill a bunch of innocent people, even though they weren't innocent because they, you know, <laughs> they were uh, worshiping other gods and at times even sacrificing their children. But if God can redeem someone like that unto salvation, then he can save anybody in our lives, even the people that we can rightly pray against if we understand the character of God properly. So, last thing, uh, we do see this played out. That is, you know, this uh, Babylon getting destroyed. We do see it played out in Revelation chapter 18. Um, how literal, I mean, of course, this is more of like, it's a dream. So it's this figurative, everything that Babylon represents gets destroyed on that last day. And actually, we're going to talk about Revelation 18 
next week when we talk about slavery laws. Um, yeah, but it does happen. And one more note before we end in prayer, at least, or maybe take a question or two. Um, the study Bible points out, and I think properly so, that the term blessed in that final verse, the term blessed does not invoke God's like, you know, loving blessing on the violence that's going to happen. The Hebrew term describes the emotion that the one who brings the punishment is going to feel. So just as the Babylonians and the Edomites felt blessed, they felt that emotion and what that means, when they were destroying Jerusalem and doing these things to the children of Israel, so this new unnamed conqueror, who will ultimately be the Medes, they'll feel the same thing when they're destroying Babylon in several uh, generations. So, um, yeah, it's, it's not God, like clapping at the idea of wicked people murdering children. That's definitely not what's going on. But uh, I think, let's see, we have like three minutes. Any questions or comments? I can't believe we got it, got through it all. <laughs> Regardless of the evil that we see around us all the time, it's, it's difficult for us sometimes to remember that God is in control. We may not see the resolution in our lifetime, but yeah, it'll come. Yeah, and and again, you know, now since made it through all the notes and everything, like I really did that ruling over your emotions. That's why you have to be in the word. Um, both in the navy, like oh my gosh, I would get so angry at the state of affairs in the navy, and it's because. I mean, not that like wicked things were going on, but just the way the culture, it was so, oh, I hated it so much. <laughs> and uh, so there was that, and I saw the corruption, and I saw this horrible leadership that clearly only cared about their career at the extent of us. And then I got out of the military, and I started studying wars. <laughs> And I got, you know, there's times where it's like, oh my goodness, I didn't bring it into my personal life or anything like that. But like, it's like I'd listen to things and read and just like, in particular, it's like people who start wars for personal gain, even today, even people who I pay taxes to, you know, it's like I had to find comfort in Daniel, you know, that like, what did he do? You know, Jesus and Barabbas, so one more thing. Jesus and Barabbas, uh, we talking about the court language, right? So Jesus, son of God, the Father Almighty, Barabbas means son of the Father. It's this extremely ironic juxtaposition between the two. And later manuscripts actually give Barabbas a first name. It was also Yeshua. So it was Jesus, son of the Father, and Jesus, son of God, the Father Almighty. And Barabbas represents doing things himself. So Barabbas was a, you know, military zealot who rose up and would, you know, even murder, trying to overthrow the oppressive government, basically. You know, whether it's the Romans or I'd have to, you know, get more notes on the history. But that's what Barabbas represents. Doing things your own way and not trusting in God. And of course... Who do we crucify? We crucify the Son of God, you know. But even that, 
of course, all part of God's plan so that we can be purified by his blood. So I will leave you with the last verse of a mighty fortress is our God. The word they still shall let remain, nor any thanks have for it. He's by our side upon the plain with his good gifts and spirit. And take they our life, goods, fame, child, and wife. Though these all be gone, our victory has been won. The kingdom ours remaineth. So we are at 45 exactly. So let's, uh, let's end in a quick prayer. Heavenly Father, you are a gracious and merciful God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you are faithful and true to us even today. You fulfilled all your promises and uh, wove a beautiful story throughout history and through your word, which led to your son, God in the flesh, coming to absolve us of our sins through his death and resurrection. So help us through word and indeed uh, live that truth and be your image and be your priests and live that in our lives so that others may see that you are a good God who freely loves and heals and forgives to all who come to him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.